This is your field is our office. I'm field agronomist for South Central Minnesota, Jay Zilski. And with me is the executive producer. You've been promoted over last week, Ashley. Wow. The executive promoter, producer, pardon me, of the uh, Your Field is Our Office podcast. My colleague to the East, field agronomist, Ashley Storby. Ashley, last week you are updating us on, on harvest on the Storby farm and, and ta- telling about us about the aroma of drying corn in the area. <laughs> What's the good word to the East this morning? Well, I, you have that survey going out on um, preferred smells of the fall that you shared on our uh, YFO agronomy uh, Twitter handle. And I'm interested to see the responses of that because while I love the smell of drying corn, I, I had my windows open over the weekend and we got all of those fines, oh, not all of them, that would be terrible, but a bunch of those fines into the house. So our house is really dusty. And as you can tell, I'm a little raspy and I think it's from all of that exposure of all the fines, but we are moving along. We're not done with harvest yet. We should be done in a couple of days. This little rain that we had was nice to get some moisture in the ground, but it did delay us a little bit. Um, but we do have across my area, some folks are wrapping up with corn. So that's been really nice. Um, and beans are pretty much long gone, but I have a new range in yields that I'd like to share with you, Jay. Okay, Ashley, okay. go ahead. I'm I'm anxious to hear. Tell me the yield and range, the yes. range and yields. Oh yes. So I I have a new high that I'm excited about for a field average on a pretty big field. Um, and you know our our yields are variable depending on the moisture that we got across the area. But I have a 281 field average on 0404 chrome. So I'm super excited about that. That was in the Owatonna area. But then I have a new low. And that's up north for me on some dryland acres uh, in Washington County that did this didn't have irrigation was really dry and it was fifty bushel corn on a pretty big farm. Um, so it just shows the huge range in experiences we're having this year. Well, you know, in in fairness, Ashley, then if you said what hybrid it was, did two eighty one? We ought to throw one hybrid under the bus because everybody understands <laughs> if it's Washington County and crappy ground. You know, so what was the hybrid we're going to throw under the bus? I wish I could tell you, Jay, I was talking to the farmer and I was just so taken aback by the, by the low yield that I was more interested in just the conditions than the hybrid. So I neglected to ask. So we'll follow up on that one. Wouldn't it be be something if it happened to be 0404 also, which (laughs) which, which then would really leave people in a quandary. But, you know, I think it's, I'm glad that you share both the high and the low, Ashley, because just because of the fact that. You know, sometimes there's always jokingly referred to as, as yield envy going on uh, out, out there because, you know, there is such a range this year, especially in in a growing season such as this, where we have in, in much of the area rainfall has been uh, so limiting. So, yeah, that is it is interesting to hear that. And we'll talk a little bit more about, you know, interesting you highlight 0404 because when we have our guest on, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about 0404 later as well. And so, Ashley, what I'm really excited about today. So I guess the question is, do I give the results of the survey first or what do I say what I'm excited about for today? So you oh, got to choose, Ashley. Lead with excitement. I'm going to lead with excitement. <laughs> so this is going to be in, in my entire career. So it's 30 years with Pioneer. And then previous to that was a crop consult. I'm going to ride combine today. Okay, so I've ridden combine over the years all the time. But this is a first because today I'm going to ride combine with a guy and we are going to be harvesting a cornfield which it is the first time there has ever been a row crop raised on this piece of ground. Oh. This was a, a, a dairy farmer who uh, sold his cows, I think three, four years ago. They had about 15 acres of pasture, 
that had never had a crop on it other than pasture grass, worked it up, tiled it, and then this is the year. And, and so I'm really excited to see what the, what the oh, yields are going to be on that field. I, I've never, ever experienced that before. So it should be uh, pretty fun. And you gave me a little bit of teaser the other day as far as how it's been yielding so far as you open up. So that's that's pretty exciting. Oh, that and, is. And, you know, on to last week's survey. So it was interesting. So those of you that, that don't follow the show on, on Twitter, uh, we had a survey out there. And it was really prompted by um, Ashley's mentioning of drying corn on their farm. And as she mentioned, it's like, it's one of my favorite smells is the smell of drying corn, especially that first time in the fall. And, and so then I started thinking other favorite smells. And those of you that know me know that I like coffee. And so, you know, I like the smell of fresh ground coffee, especially if it's a bag I bought at Caribou has been sitting in my truck all day. It's really, really good. <laughs> and then I also like the smell of freshly tilled soil. Now, in the survey, I said freshly disturbed because I didn't want to offend any of the no-tillers or strip-tillers by talking <laughs> about aggressive tillage. So this is what's interesting, Ashley. And I don't know if we need to run it again, but this is this is absolute truth. It was a tie. Tie. 38% voted for the smell of corn drying. 38% for the smell of fresh ground coffee. Disturbed soil, I call it disturbed soil, rather than tilled soil, was at 19%. So wow. that's pretty neat, um, you know, and, and I think for me, you know, drying corn and I'll move on, is, and farmers probably think that maybe the same way, is that when they first start during harvest, the first smell of drying corn is really good. But after weeks mm -hmm. of constantly smelling that aroma, you maybe get a little bit tired of it after a while. And, and you know, there's a little bit of cost associated <laughs> with drying that corn um, as well, uh, Ashley. But, you know, the other thing I'm excited about to hear today is um, the latest on, on dry down, especially because we kind of had loud last week was kind of a lousy week for dry down. And then all of a sudden, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and it warmed up. We had some strong winds. So if I remember last week, you dropped about 2.8%, I think, a week ago in points mm -hmm. and moisture. Um, what, did, what did you see this? Uh, what did you see most recent week here? Yes. So I I have some numbers for you, but unfortunately, they are not hand-shelled numbers from our plot locations because Oh, harvest has been moving along so swiftly that all of our plot locations are in the bin um, so or somewhere else, but they are not in the field. So those data points are no longer able to be collected. But what I did was I looked back at the last seven days of average temperature. I pulled this from Oatana. And then there's a formula that, that we can use um, to estimate the percent moisture loss per day. So I plugged in that formula based on the highs and the lows in our average temperature. And Jay, over the last seven days, based on, on the formula, we lost 1.25% um, of moisture overall over these seven days. But those days where we were really cold, I had a high of uh, 37 and a low of 19 on one day. We had a low of 12 one day last week. It was really cold. We were not based on on the formula we were not dropping moisture and we know that's variable based on like you know pericarp characteristics of the kernel husk characteristics and the actual current status of moisture in a in a given kernel um but on average 1.25 percent 
But the nice thing is then when we look forward from today on, um, we're projected based on the highs and lows that we would lose about two points of moisture over the next week. So we're a little more forgiving as we get into the, the next week, Jay. So that's what I've got. Where did you get that formula from, Ashley? It'd oh, be interesting. Yes. Everybody wants to find it there. That is a wonderful question. I had put together a agronomy document um, earlier this year. And now um, I am remiss because I didn't cite the actual study that I pulled the formula from. Um, but we will share that on our YFO agronomy Twitter. But if you, if you wanted to know the formula right away, so you take the average daily temperature and you multiply that by 0 0.0202, and then you subtract 0.7133. And we'll cite where that came from. Um, I had included that in a training for our sellers earlier this year. So um, yeah, we'll follow up with that. That's interesting, actually, because as you were setting it up, I was kind of wondering, it's okay, I wonder how this formula is going to work. <laughs> and you know, it, it's interesting because it would, to me, it would make sense that we would have significantly less dry down than we had the previous week. So mm -hmm. 1.25 points reduction in moisture. So very, very interesting. I know here to the West, I think we're maybe blessed a little more so than you folks to the East there, as far as uh, dry down. And then yesterday I was riding with a guy who was harvesting some 1185, which is a 111 day product. And it was at 18% moisture. And uh, I think, you know, as we've mentioned other times, I think things, uh, you know, were rushed to the finish over here. So we maybe sacrificed some in yield. We've also rushed to the finish and we maybe have a little bit drier corn than you folks. So you got mm -hmm. the water to the east, you got more bushels, but you also have more water. Mm -hmm. But um, Ashley, in, in addition to that uh, dry down information. Any other interesting observations from the field before we move on and talk to our guest? Yeah, I just have two, two quick one, one short one. And my short one is I was walking a field up on my north side near Hastings uh, into last week and I noticed some goosenecking. I didn't have my shovel. So I, I pulled on the plant a little bit just to see if I could get a look at the root structure. The plant popped right out. I was able to see pretty significant rootworm feeding. I got my shovel, looked at some more plants and saw rootworm feeding on the samples, all the samples I was looking at. Um, so just a call out, if you have um, a field that maybe didn't perform as you thought and you haven't worked that field yet, or maybe you're not going to, still a chance to check it out, do a little troubleshooting, see if you got some rootworm feeding. My second um, observation um, that I'd like some some thoughts from you on, Jay, is there's been some pockets in our area as we're continuing to harvest corn um, where we have had issues with um, the tops breaking out in our corn um, throughout the, the area in, in just pockets. And then it's as it's feeding into the corn head, some of those tops are accumulating and in a fluffy pile and not feeding very well. And I haven't observed that in the past. And I wondered, you know, and it's hybrids that we've had in the field for years and years and years. So I don't, I don't see it as a hybrid correlation, um, but more of an environmental correlation. And I know you've been drier than us. Um, so it, it surely is a, a factor of the dry conditions and that dry plant material on top. But then I got to wondering when we had that frost um, earlier this year, before we were all the way black layered in some of our hybrids, when you looked at where that frost affected the plant, it was about to the ear level in a lot of places. So I wondered if that foliage on top was even drier than usual because it's been dead longer. Um, so I wanted to get your your thoughts on that one, Jay. 
It's interesting, Ash, because I, I've had a few <clears throat> isolated comments with regard to that. And, and again, just to clarify, it, it isn't a it isn't a stock lodging type of issue or anything like that. It's like the tops are breaking over. And we saw that a couple of weeks ago where things early on with some of the strong winds were the tops were breaking over. And I think it's aggravated by the dry weather that we've had. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the frost. So it could be that if that froze and then already started drying down, that that may be a part of it is as well. And as far as kind of building up, like it's like kind of like piling up like feathers. It's all so light. It's just kind of piling up on on, on the head of the combine as well. And, you know, I, I think um, perhaps and we had some showers move through the area yesterday and on on Sunday. And so I'm hoping maybe if we get some of those stocks just a little more damp, that hopefully that'll that'll feed through um a little bit better. I don't really have any, you know, magical solution. You know, some folks have uh, some reels that they've used when there's been down corn. Maybe that might help uh feed some things through. Uh, I always get a little bit nervous because occasionally I'll also see uh, farmers maybe out um, you know, they shut the combine down and, and they, well, they don't shut it all the way down, but, but they, they get out of the seat of the combine and they're on the head stopping some of those, uh, stalks down. So they start feeding in and just kind of, you know, remind people uh, to exercise a little bit of caution. One farmer I was with uh, a week ago, he made some slight adjustments on the deck plates on his combine. And it, it appeared that that helped, um, pull some of that stuff in. A little bit better as well but it is interesting how we have some of these unique things show up every year that's like maybe we haven't seen them before and it's a function of uh, some unique environmental conditions and such so hopefully the the damp weather maybe is going to help some of that mm -hmm. uh yeah. issue there it's not going to really help things as far as grain dry down but it maybe help through some of that uh feeding through the combine mm -hmm. actually yeah so. thanks for your thoughts on that jay i appreciate it it's it's, it's in it's always enjoyable to see something that we've never seen before, um, but, you know, we're disappointed that that might cause a slowdown in, in harvest. Um, so we, we don't like that for our farmers, of course, but always something to learn. So what have you learned or what are your interesting observations to share? Well, you, you know, Ashley, so it's, you know, I don't want to to get re redundant here. And so probably the main thing I'm just going to mention is as well. And don't know if you see it as much in your area, my area where it's been so dry. You know, I receive a couple of calls every week about, you know, fields that are substantially off the mark. And we know that, you know, expectations have changed as harvest has gone on from what they maybe were as far as, uh, you know, entering harvest. And in a lot of cases, those expectations rose up. And then along the way, I'll get a, a few fields where, um, you know, guys had a hybrid on one particular field and then he gets to another field and it's maybe the field averages, maybe only 150 bushel where things have been closer to 200 elsewhere. And in my area this year, Ashley, invariably it's come down to, you know, believe it or not, it's, it's, it's moisture, <laughs> but, but then, you know, it, it comes down to situations where, okay, it got dry and other fields were dry as well. Why is this one off the mark even worse? And, and that's where, you know, and I should scold you for not taking your shovel off with you. Have your shovel in your <laughs> truck all the time because that's what I always do. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, the situations I've been in, I get out on, on my shovel and I try to dig. And I'm not a small guy. And I have a hard time getting that shovel in the ground. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what I have seen 
comes back to conditions at or shortly after planting and, you know, or, or tillage. And it's, there's some serious compaction restricting these roots. And we have some Mohawk roots, or we've got uh, roots that are maybe primarily confined to the top two or three inches of soil. Then we throw particularly dry conditions at the crop and it just further compounds those issues. And so you think about the plant's ability, not only to access moisture when you have restricted roots, but also fertility and, and, and fertilizer. And so uh, again, it, the calls I've been getting so often tie into water directly or indirectly. And you know, also I had another situation where there was some alfalfa, corn on alfalfa that was terminated late. The alfalfa was terminated late and already had drawn down a significant amount of water in that field. So, um, Ashley, uh, well, you know, maybe, are, pardon me. Oh, those are, those are really interesting observations, Jay. And I, I always, I always like hearing your thoughts as you, as you reflect upon the season. And so often it comes back to how we started. So I appreciate that, but I think you were going to lead into, we have a guest and we should, we should introduce him. Uh, you know, as, as Jay and I were talking last week, we thought, gosh, we got enough corn out. We're starting to see some performance trends. We're going to be talking about hybrid performance. Um, so we have a guest that can help us illuminate some of our hybrid performance, Jay. Absolutely, Ashley. So this is podcast number 24. And I think all but maybe two shows, we've always had a guest. And we've had some great guests. You know, we really had, to, you know, we, we started out the season with a list of guests and you keep going further and further down. It's like, okay. I guess we, we got to the bottom of the list and and we found Eric Shimmick, our 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 product agronomist. Mm -hmm. Now the thing is he actually was on the show earlier in the season. And and so it's it's great to have Eric on the show. Eric, I see, you know, uh listeners, you can't see, but we, we do this via Zoom. And Eric is wearing his angry corn, uh pioneer corn hoodie. So mm -hmm. those of you that would have followed me at Seed Zeke on Twitter. It actually did win Shirt Madness last <laughs> March when we, we had the brackets. It made it all the way through and it won. And, and so I was pleased to see that um, Eric uh, is, is sporting that hoodie today. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Nice to be here. <laughs> well, Eric, I have a couple. I have, we have many questions for you. But first question that I would like to ask you is you know this time of year you're reflecting on product performance you're looking at a lot of data and some of that data is in your um what we call impact trials um so can i ask you real quick can you define one define what impact stands for and two tell us what percent harvested they are for for your area sure, sure. It, it's dangerous to tell me real quick because you know me better than that. Uh, impact, intensively managed product advancement and characterization trials. Mm -hmm. Jay loves a good acronym. That's a really good acronym in corporate speak. So in, in a nutshell, what that means is it's the final two years of uh, research trials that are more on-farm, more real-world-based real um, experiments. Um on farm and then we make our final decisions of what advances out of out of those plots and what advances for corn and, and for soybeans in our neck of the woods so um so boy i've been done with uh soybean impact plots so i, I cover basically all the southern third of minnesota from border to border um 
we were done with soybeans probably a, over a week ago. I have 25 of those plots, I believe. Um, and on corn, I have just a few little stragglers out there. I think we're about, uh, I think as of this morning, we were 20 out of 25 are complete. Mm. So, so we're getting really close getting down the chute. And that seems pretty reflective of our pace of harvest in our area. If yep. you work the math. Um, so you have all of this data coming in for you to look at, to help us make product selections um, going into next year. And <clears throat> excuse me. So one of the things that we've been thinking about is we're seeing performance trends. We're seeing hybrids that are rising to the top for consistency. We're, we're seeing great placement opportunities for hybrids throughout our portfolio. Uh, but one of the things that is interesting about this year in particular, you know, knock on wood, is we haven't had any, any widespread agronomic challenges by which to evaluate products in the field for us. So, you know, some years we have a stock year, like 2018, I think of you know, lots of heat, we got late in the season and stocks were done, yields were high, and you could separate hybrids based on their late season uh, stock integrity. Um, and then some years we have brittle years, we have a big wind and we're able to separate hybrids in season that way, or a root lodging year um, where we're able to look at hybrid characteristics broadly. So can you tell us in a year like this, which, you know, we're almost done with, with corn harvest. So I feel like we can say that it, it truly is not going to happen in the sense of a, a widespread agronomic issue. In a year like this, how do we evaluate hybrids for those type of characteristics when mother nature has been relatively gentle to us? So um, in the research world, they, they would refer to it as G by E, which means genetics by environment, right? So the thing to keep in mind though, is that these products didn't just magically appear this spring they've been evaluated for six years prior to this in, in research. So uh, when a plant breeder makes a cross, you know, the male and the female, that first year they call it TC1, then it's T, which stands for top cross, sorry, Jay, acronyms, <laughs> top cross one. Then there's a, then there's a two, then it, then it moves on to R1, which would be research year one all the way up. And by the time it reaches me, it would be R4, and then those would be kind of the more closely related to real world experience on farm trials. And then for corn, we do that again in our five years. So uh, specifically to corn, you have seven years worth of experiences of those products before they ever advance to get into a pioneer bag to be at the farm gate. So if you think about that, this is 2022, anything that I advanced this, that anything that we will advance this fall to be for sale in 2023, that product was actually created in 2015, which seems mm. like a lifetime ago, right? Yeah. So the genetic by environment, the G by E, you think about all of those years where you have different amount of heat, different amount of moisture, different types of diseases, wind, no wind, all those things. Environment is a very big thing, right? So those products have been tested in many different conditions. Mm -hmm. And so as the product nerd, what is a little frustrating for me is somebody has an experience with a product and if it doesn't go well, it's I'm out and I'm on to the next thing. And the thing that it's so hard for me, because it's like, these are my children, you need to give them another chance. <laughs> because sometimes you're better off to double down, 
because the next year will be different. Guaranteed, it will be different. And the next year, that product might be the greatest thing ever invented, you know, but I also farm. I get it. If something disappoints you, I'm done with that. I'm moving on to the next thing. That's interesting, Eric. So you say that, so that's, we've been evaluating those products since, did you say 2015? Did I hear you right? Was that what you said? And so it's interesting. So then start thinking about the agronomic challenges. So a year ago, there were some stock lodging issues, uh, fairly widespread um, a, a year ago. Um, we also, there also was a, a brittle snap year in there as well. Yep. I think it's that, was that 2018? I'm so, kind of losing track. 2018, yep. 2019 was a crappy short, uh, low heat unit year. And, and so it is interesting over that span of time, when you start to think about some of those naturally occurring agronomic challenges, we, we've, we've had those for you to be able to evaluate these classes with and get some inkling of some of those potential limitations. Right. And then Eric, maybe to also speak to, in, in some cases, we, we also try to simulate oh, some yes. of those things too. Yeah. Good, good point. So um, yeah, we try to simulate things. So um, we, we will put, again, we're specifically to corn. We'll put the, the Boreas wind machine through, through the products to try to simulate you know, you don't always get that windstorm and we always pray to not have those windstorms. So then we try to simulate it where we run a, I mean, it, it's a, it's a patented thing, but you can find it on YouTube. Um, basically it's like a giant haggy with, with uh, fans on it and you try to simulate storms, wind. And so you are evaluating roots, you're evaluating brittle, you're evaluating stocks, those types of things. Um, we do different things for diseases. Um irrigated, non-irrigated, drought locations, all those types of things. And every one of those years that you're throwing either natural environmental conditions against these products or simulated environmental things, only the cream of the crop advances to the next year. So if anything falls on its face, it is discarded and thrown away. So those products are, are tested. Of course, they're not perfect, which selfishly for me, that's a good thing. It's job security. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's our job is to find the product that will go on every acre and can handle everything. And mother nature is probably never going to allow that to happen. Interesting. Really interesting, Eric. So you, you talked about, you know, trying to simulate. So in the, in the absence of some of these things occurring naturally, we have ways of simulating things. You know, one of the things that I know over the years that the research team has had is what they call, at least here in Mankato, they have, they call their blight plots where they've specifically inoculated for diseases like northern corn leaf blight. And I remember seeing over the years how, if I remember right, I think we'll, we'll poke into the stock of the corn plant in some cases to inoculate for anthracnose. And of course, what your Field as Our Office podcast would be complete this year without mentioning tar spot. Of course. And, you know, we, we joked a week ago that maybe we should actually turn it into a drinking game. And surprisingly enough, I got an email from a guy saying, you know what, he wanted to be all in and it come as no surprise. It actually was a guy from Wisconsin, but, <laughs> but on a more serious note, let's, let's talk about now tar spots, a relatively new disease. How are, are, are we inoculating for tar spot? And, you know, the first thing I think, geez, we inoculate. I'm thinking our listeners are saying, great, you're bringing tar spot into our neighborhood, just what we need. So why don't you tell us, uh, Eric, um, how our research team is evaluating 
how we can make our already strong lineup for tar spot even better yet. Sure. Yeah. So, so that is another thing that research does in both corn and beans is that, um, you know, we're always looking for, for better, um, disease resistance in our products. So Jay, you are correct. And for anthracnose stock rot for Northern corn leaf blight, we will actually inoculate and, you know, spread the disease in a plot and try to, um, you know, because you, again, it's an environmental thing and you don't always get heavy pressure. Um, so we will inoculate and, and try to, um, determine how strong is the tolerance for that product to those, to those diseases. In other cases, we don't inoculate, but what we do is, um, our research team is, is looking, um, for cooperators that have, you know, what we would call a hot pocket, um, a, a field with a known history of severe, uh, disease presence. So in soybeans, we will do that with white mold. We will do that with sudden death syndrome. You know, the, you know, we, we find fields that have a known history. So, you know, the inoculum is there and then they can irrigate and do some things to help that disease along, um, to, to keep that pressure up. So in tar spot, we do not inoculate for it, but we do have known research locate or known fields with heavy pressure. And so research um, will put a plot in those type of situations. So they will plant, you know, many, many different um, hybrids. So remember, you know, you, that, that uh, R1 that, you know, the, in that seven year span, you know, starting probably in year three or four, those products start to go into um, that type of a situation. And you don't start at year one because there's thousands and thousands of lines to look at. So you kind of need to start narrowing things down first by yield more than anything and narrow it, narrow things down. And then you start putting them into those agronomic situations when you, when you only have hundreds of lines instead of thousands and, and evaluate them from there. So they will put them, put those hybrids in a, in a situation where we are fairly confident that we will have tar spot pressure in that case. Um, and there's, there's still an environmental factor there because you need, need leaf wetness and all those types of things. You need to have the right environment to have it, you know, the old disease triangle. Um, and then, uh, so then all of those hybrids are evaluated against each other. So in pioneer, our scale is one to nine. One would mean it gets, uh, one speck of tar spot and it's dead and nine would be complete resistance, right? And there is, there are no ones and there are no nines. So as of now, our scale basically is ranging from four to seven. So if you consider a five is the average. So we have certain lines that are slightly below average all the way up to lines that are, you know, at, at a seven would be two scores above average. And we do have competitors in there as well as part of that. So everything is evaluated within within this, um, the maturity zone that they're in. And Eric, the cool thing is, as I see it, as, as I mentioned at the outset, is, is that we, we do have pretty solid lineup already. So those that are those, some of those that are sevens, then I'm assuming that a research team can look back at the, at the parentage of those particular products. And then, so we're already at a head and we already have an advantage earlier on as far as having already been able to identify some lines that appear to be particularly strong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. They're so, and, you know, the, the plant breeders, you know, 
they have vast knowledge of those parent lines that they're working with. So they can take a product that is known to be a little weaker for Northern corn leaf blight and cross it with another line that is known to be extremely solid for Northern corn leaf blight and, and improve the process that way. They have that for roots. They have that for brittle. They have that for stocks, you name it. They, they have those types of things. I love hearing that information. It, it just gives me so much confidence in our in her scores and the breadth of our evaluation. And as an agronomist, it makes me feel more comfortable in, in recommending information, re- recommending products and, and sharing information with customers. I, th- I think that's a key point to be very confident in the scores. Um, and, and I don't think um, that, that you can compare scores from Pioneer versus scores to another company because we're working on different scales. We have different experiences, those types of things. Um, so we first discovered tar spot, I think in 2017 in Wisconsin, I think it, so that'd be the closest to us, Northern Illinois, Indiana, those, those areas. Um, we didn't come out with a score until last fall. Right. So we, we took our time on that. We wanted to have a enough date when we put out a score, it means something. So you needed to have enough data behind that. We had indications where they kind of, they would tell us, well, we think this one's average or this one's a little above average, but we didn't publish a score until we had enough data to back it up. You can be very confident with this, with our scores that you see in, in our, in our publications. Mm, I, I so appreciate that. And that, that was, that was like a Christmas gift to us when those scores came out because we were, we were clamoring for, for information on, on hybrid tolerance in relation to tar spot. And, and it feels, it feels really good as a, as an agronomist working with customers to, to know that there's meat behind that information and our other scores as well. So I'm thinking, you know, right now we are, you know, nearing the end of October and harvest is nearing completion. And some of our, some of our customers, some of our farmers listening have probably already made hybrid decisions going into next year. Um, but many like to wait until harvest is done on their own farm. They can see performance information across the area. And something that that we think about year over year is providing a package of hybrids. You know, you like to have multiple hybrids on a farm um, so that you can play the odds that that environment next year will be favorable for, for those hybrids. Um, and we make our our best um, recommendations possible based on field characteristics, management, yield potential, um, you know, a myriad of things, but knowing that we don't want all our eggs in one basket because environment, like you said, is, is really important as it relates to hybrid performance. So looking at the environment we've had this year, um, as we go to Jay's area, we've been pretty dry. My area, it's a mixed bag. We go into the Southeast and they've had a lot of moisture um, with tar spot being the limiting factor. So if I'm a farmer, and I'm, I have a, a hybrid on my farm that it did amazing. I want all of that for next year. I, my whole farm, just give me that. That's all I want, Eric. Help me understand why I shouldn't do that and, and why to look at that second, third, fourth, fifth placing hybrid on my farm. Yeah. So that, so that goes back to that G by E, that genetic by environment discussion. So, um, you, you might have a hybrid or a variety that it's, it's just, you know, a world beater. That's the best thing that, that you've ever planted this year. Um, I'd like to think it, it can repeat. Um, um, and, 
and I would when when something is that good, it is very rare for for it to you know fall on its face, especially after all those years of research and on farm experience. It's not that it would necessarily fall on its face, but Mother Nature might throw a different type of of a stress at it that it doesn't do quite as well. So I really um, I always encourage people to plant a package um, of you know depending on the size of your farm, you know, three, four, a dozen, however many different products that, that or uh, um, products that you need, you need to plant. And there's even things that, that can help you out just with maturity, you know, in a, if you have a drought um, during pollination, normal pollination time, maybe a earlier hybrid or an earlier silking hybrid might perform better in that type of, of situation because it has already gotten through pollination when that drought hit, or maybe the drought is later, you know, all those types of things. So you can diversify a lot of times just by looking at CRM or relative maturity. So a hundred day product and a 106 day product, and, but also look at that silk, silk CRM or so this product, even though it's a hundred day, it may silk as if it's a 105, or even though it's a hundred day, it may silk as if it's a 95. So mm -hmm. that brings you diversity as well. And then you can look at all the other scores across in, in the publications, you know, the catalogs, those types of things. This one's a little stronger for roots. This one's a little stronger for brittle. This one's a little stronger for this disease or that disease. That's how you bring diversity to your farm and co cover your bases. Mm. I, I remind our sellers sometimes that you can't sell all winners. Not not everything's going to win, right? You you need to sell a third place product too. That makes me feel good, uh, Shem, because you know, for a loser like me, it means I got a chance. Oh my god! You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> but 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 seriously, you know, and I think one of the things that that I like, uh, Ashley and, and Eric, and in a few weeks here. Um, our, our, our farmers and customers in the area will be seeing our latest version of our agronomy summary book. And every year we put the scatter graphs in there for this particular year. But then there's always a section in there where we have the previous year's graphs to walk people through. And I think that's always a really helpful tool. And I always sit, sit down and enjoy visiting with a farmer and saying, Okay, yeah, I I know you really really want to plant this one that's up here at the top, and 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 yeah, I agree you should look at some on your farm. But yeah, you see this one down here that's down kind of lower. I still think you should plant this one, and here's why. And then you start to look at other years worth of information or how they happen to complement one another, um, as as well, Eric. So I <clears throat> I, I appreciate that. That's uh, you know that's like I said, that's a nice tool for people to use, and it always is. So many of the things that you referred to earlier, Eric, where, okay, it, it didn't do well this year, so I don't want that on my farm, okay? That's basic human nature. So much of what we deal with is just basic human nature, or people look at our graphs and say, okay, I want those three hybrids. I don't want anything else. That's basic human nature. And even us as agronomists, we have to fight against that sometime too, because that's our job, us and our sales reps, to walk our customers down that path and in a lot of cases, we're able to relate experiences with some of these products that maybe aren't at the top of the heap uh, from growers' fields that we've been in in this particular year or the previous one. So um, that's right. some that's great a, information that's, here. That's an excellent point. So those products maybe on the lower left of that graph, they were advanced for a reason. And if if they weren't good, 
we would kill them <laughs> and, and and replace them with something else. Um, so yeah, and and when we're doing um, advancements to that commercial stage, we're looking. So we will take a look at summary data of all of the years that it's been tested. We'll look at that, but then I will look at what did it do in 2022? What did it do in 2021? What did it do in 2020? Because you want your, you're striving to find consistency. And if something was way off one of those years, more than likely it got whacked and it didn't advance to the next stage, but maybe it was in fourth place three years ago. And then it was in first place one year ago. And then this year it was in second place. You know, you just, those, those things happen. They, they can't win every year. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like pitchers in baseball. Okay. Right. You may, you may have an ace right. pitcher, but he doesn't win every single game. And, right. and yet you have an entire staff that has different strengths. And that's kind of how, how our lineup is as far as being particularly deep, at least our lineup at pioneer. Now I don't know that we can really speak to the twins as far as having a particularly deep lineup mm. as far as their pitching staff, <laughs> but at pioneer, if you look at our products, we got a pretty darn deep lineup. Uh, Eric, transitioning here you know one of the things is, is i've been riding combines this fall we had ashley and i both would had uh, appreciation events and um plot nights one of the questions folks have had has been some, some buzz out there about short corn and mm -hmm. uh, maybe you can speak to where pioneer is yeah. um, with regard to developing short corn i think it's one of those probably it's one of those things where you know i guess we're keeping it secret higher mm -hmm. um, because we've been doing it for a while nobody really knows about that maybe you can let the cat out of the bag as far as short corn sure so 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 short corn is is exactly what it what it says i don't think it's very politically correct to call it short corn i think we should call it little mm. or something different mm. but um but it's it's exactly what it is it is it is a corn plant so you can take current current lines of what you have. So you think of a really tall hybrid um, and we do our PKP plots. You can, you know, you'll have a hybrid that jumps in your head immediately. Very tall hybrid. Um, there are naturally occurring genes that can shorten that corn up. And, um, and there are, there are also GMO transgenic type of genes out there that will do th that will do that as well. Um, and the advantage to that is so you you still have the same amount of leaf mass. You still you still have the everything is kind of the same, but you're short shortening the internodes, the spacing between the nodes. You're shorting you're you are making that a more compact plant. So you think about a tall hybrid. They always make me a little nervous just because when you have wind, which we always do here, the more the taller the plant, the more leverage, the more stress on roots. So I tend, and I'm 5'10", if I'm lucky, if I stand mm -hmm. up really straight. Um, uh, so what, when we have been working on short corn, when you walk out into one of those research trials, um, the very tallest corn that I've seen to the top of the tassel would probably be six feet tall. Mm. And the ear is probably hip, hip high. So the advantage there is a shorter statured corn. So it is less likely to have an issue with wind. So that, that would be the advantage there, but there's a lot of things, but you know, you don't just want to throw that out into the marketplace because there are things to consider and, and kind of a proof of concept, if you will. So 
do we need to plant them a little heavier population in order to keep the the, um, the yield the same? Do we need um, do we need to have the egg engineers redesign corn heads because that ear is going to be so much lower? What happens when you go over that clay knob or into a really coarse textured soil where that ear is currently in a quote unquote normal situation? It's hip high. Is that ear going to be ankle high? <laughs> that could be a problem, right? So, so we don't just want to throw it out there um, and just see what happens. We have a lot of proof of concept to um, to get through first. My least, the thing that I'm least concerned about it is the the combining part. A egg engineering has figured out a lot of really cool things. They'll figure it out if this is something that needs to come. But for me, the the thing that is is besides the wind, I mean, you think about side dressing corn, you think about spraying fungicide in corn where you're in a sprayer and you can actually see, <laughs> you don't have, you don't have a, you know, plant in your windshield. It's actually below you. I mean, what, what a concept and uh, how fun would that be to, to go out and do those types of things? Mm -hmm. You know, you got a six inch rain and it washed away all your, all your nitrogen and Hey, I can get out there and I can side dress again. If I need to, you know, I mean, it's, it's very exciting things. They are working on it. I hope it comes, um, for all those reasons, but we don't want to throw it out there and then run into problems. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that gives me the same confidence that I I have in our scores and knowing that we make, we, we achieve proof of concept before, before we, we take a position on a score or take a position on something like short corn in terms of the management and, and field experience. I'm sure our listeners ears peaked up when perked up, uh, when you mentioned being able to spray, um, this corn with maybe a, a sprayer that isn't a high clearance sprayer, um, and, and be able to, um, have more opportunity to apply in season nitrogen later in the season without, um, without having a, a high clearance sprayer and Y drops and making that investment or, or needing to hire a retailer for that. Um, you know, in that case, and that's become very popular as we get ready to take a drink, those participating in the drinking game, as we think about tar spot. Um, but you know, that's, that's in the future. So we look forward, thank you for your work on, on that, Eric and, and everyone on the team. And, and we look forward to that, um, coming to fruition and, and hitting our, our customers farms in the future. Um, you know, as we think about this year and normal size hybrids that are coming out of the field and really making a name for themselves. Um, and you, you spoke of consistency year over year earlier, um, consistency across the geography has been achieved from, um, our new 104 AP 0404 Chrome also available in a double. That's one that I'm getting customer calls on, um, just raving reviews, lots of excitement. Uh, so I'm really excited about that hybrid 9955 Chrome as well. Also available in a double, um, is having a fantastic year. 0622, um, achieving some some high yields on farms where we've set a record where this is the best corn we've ever had on this farm. And I'm sorry to say that, Jay, you speak of the yield MVSU. Uh, I know we're just going to soak up this rainfall that we got this year and appreciate it. We're grateful for that. Um, thinking about the guys that that didn't. Um, but, you know, we always talk about not chasing. We've talked about today, not chasing that hot hybrid. So, Eric, we talked about those three, 9955, 0404, and 0622. What are some other products on your mind that our farmers should not overlook 
as they're making their package selections for next year? Uh, well, I said earlier that they're all my children. It's hard for me to pick favorites. Um, but, you know, up and down the lineup, and Jay, you've been here 30 years. I've been here 20. This is probably the most balanced, robust lineup that we've had in my career. I'm sure you as well, Jay. Um, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a, it's a blessing that, that we have right now from, you know, the 95 day zone, um, 94, 92 has been around, um, for, for quite a while, but it's just very solid agronomically yield wise. Um, even in, even in Southern Minnesota, you know, like, um, where maybe that might be considered an early corn, you know, guys are planning that. Um, it's ready to go early September, catching early basis, um, and, and it yields, you know, a product like that, a new one in that zone would be 9624, um, which is a very exciting double and triple of that. Um, there are things that are getting a little bit older, but they still perform very well and we haven't replaced them yet. And so like an 0339Q um, performing very well. So I don't know. There, there are a lot of choices in there. You go very full season, 1185 is having a year, you know, um, hearing great things out of that. So um, it's, it's hard for me to, to pick a favorite. I, I appreciate that you, you um, speak of them as your children. That, <laughs> that shows how much you invest into your, your role. So thank you for that, Eric. <laughs> Eric, and I just echo your thoughts as well. And you know, I've been riding combine lately and was with a guy yesterday. He kind of grinned as I told him it's, it's you know, and I'm serious when I say it, it sounds like a typical sales guy thing. And I'm sincere when I say it that, yeah, when I first started with Pioneer 30 years ago, we had 3751. And in the fall of 93, people were asking questions like, is there any reason why I shouldn't put 3751 on every last one of my acres? Because we only had maybe one or two other complementary hybrids that we could be that confident in. And now we, we've got that really deep line of sale. Um, that's that's really exciting. And you know, before we close out, we probably should talk about soybeans. Last but not least, we should talk mm -hmm. about soybeans. You know, you know, corn's kind of the glamour crop. You know, it everybody is. loves to to raise corn. I always joke with farmers is that you know having a big corn yield is like shooting a big buck. Okay, deer hunting season's coming up. You know, when you shoot a big buck, you brag to everybody. You shoot a big doe, yeah, you feel pretty good, but your chest isn't quite puffed out as much. And I was thinking, you know, raising a big bean crop is kind of like shooting a big doe. You know, <laughs> you, you're proud, but not nearly as proud as if you shot a buck. But, but regardless, <laughs> we'll talk about soybeans. And, you know, I was riding combine with a farmer last week. And, you know, one of the things he was talking about is that, you know, he shied away if he was a little bit nervous about, um, white mold on his 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 farm and i said you know you can be very confident in a variety like you know uh 18a 73e it's a, a new one of our uh, uh a series and list varieties and he says really he said where did you have a chance this year as dry as it's been to evaluate that variety for for white mold and so um, you know, Eric, maybe, and again, maybe it's kind of like what you said earlier, but maybe repeat some of that, you know, and I shared with him a year ago that, you know, these varieties are, are planted across a fairly wide geography. So somewhere we're going to be able to hopefully get white mold, you know, um, you know, 
unfortunate for the farmer, but hopefully for us, we have a chance to score them in some of those plots. So maybe talk about something like that as far as establishing those scores for, for white mold on those A-series and list beans. Sure. So um, similar to what we talked about with corn, so the, the, the breeders have an idea with genetic background of parents and what what those lines or those varieties can do. Um, and that's from um, visual observations, obviously, but even genetically, you know, they're, they're, they have markers in the, when they look at the, the genetic code, there are markers where they're, okay, if we see that this product has this gene or this group of genes, we know that it's going to be at a certain level for brown stem rot or sudden death or what have you, or they have markers for soybean cyst nematode that we know that this one will be PKing, this one will be PA88788, this one is none or those types of things. But as far as on uh, um, uh, actual disease pressure, so you need to remember that our plots are very wide geography basically everywhere we grow crops in the in this in this world we have plots and that's one of the the huge advantages that we have that some other companies don't is is we evaluate everywhere so i you know everything is perspective so locally you might think oh i have terrible white mold pressure and then you get in your truck like i do and you go on a plot tour in wisconsin and it's like, uh, this is white mold pressure. <laughs> what we have back home is nothing compared to this. This is a hellhole. And it's a function of, you know, a lot of dairy, a lot of manure, a lot of rain, big, huge, growthy plants, those types of things. So, and you might say that about sudden death syndrome in Illinois or Iowa, you know, our, our products are being evaluated everywhere. And we get in our trucks and we start touring the country and, and local research teams are out there taking scores and all those things. Um, I'm very confident in the scores that we publish. And for us, for a lot, a lot of my geography of, on a, again, that scale of one to nine, a four for white mold, 90% of the time is good enough for most of our areas. Now I have certain areas in, in Eastern Minnesota where it's like, yeah, you probably better have a five, right? You get into Wisconsin, they wouldn't even consider a four in a lot of cases if, if they didn't have to. So it's, it's all relative to where you are. And so we have, to answer your question, we have the genetic background to know what they do, but then also we have plots in a lot of different places. And then we have research plots, just like what we talked about, tar spot, those types of things, we have known locations where research will put a plot there every year because they know we're going to have pressure in this field and evaluate things. They do that with white mold. They do that with sudden death. Um, and again, they have that, those genetic markers to, um, that tell us things like, you know, brown stem rot. So with that, so we've, we've talked about disease then in soybeans, but we, one more thing on soybeans before we, start to wrap up the show. Um, when, when we look at a soybean, we're looking at the disease characteristics largely, but then also more recently, we have begun to look at the source of soybean cyst nematode resistance. Mm -hmm. And, and I see that more recently because historically 
Um, you know, and I'm reaching into my my memory back into like 2013. I know you guys can reach back a lot further, but that's the beginning of my career. And the, at that time, peaking varieties were very few and far between. We mm-hmm. had a lot of PI88, 788 source of cyst resistant varieties. Um, but at that time, if there was a peaking variety available, you probably gave up a lot of yield. You you may likely didn't want to plant that variety unless you had major cyst issues on your farm where soybean cyst nematode were resistant to the PI-88, 788 source of cyst resistance. And if you look at Greg Tilka's work down in um, Iowa State, uh, each year he provides um, a ledger of soybean cyst nematode resistant varieties and then what percent fall into each respective bucket. And uh, I don't have that information readily available, but I, I recall it's somewhere around 95% of commercially available soybeans that Greg looks at uh, have the PI-88 source assist resistance. And we are super fortunate at Pioneer to have multiple soybean varieties with the peaking source assist resistance where we're not giving up yield. And the cool thing about that is we know that we have uh, challenges with PI-88, 788 throughout Minnesota, where we've exposed the nematode population to that um, source over and over again. So we are well served to uh, rotate that source of resistance. Um, and now we can do it without giving up yield. And and we are unique in that position um, from my perspective, Eric, to have a good lineup of peaking source assist, one of those being the P, um, P18A73Es, um, our new 1A Enlist A-series variety. So can you share with us, you know, that's pretty novel um, from my perspective to have this arsenal. Can you share with us how how we achieve um, this integration of peaking into our lineup and, and a little bit of background on that? Sure. So there, there are, are naturally occurring sources of soybean cyst resistance. And um, over the years, um, 88788 was the easiest to work with. So any anytime you go back to native lines and try to, to, to build something in, you have been breeding for certain things, especially the yield, of course. And as you reach back and, and try to integrate different sources, you're bringing not just that source of resistance, but you're bringing some baggage along with it, right? So many years ago now, um, we had a handful of breeders that decided, you know, this this Peking source of resistance is really cool. It gets uh, gives us different race coverage than what 8878 does, but it has some baggage and, you know, there was some yield drag, those types of things. And they just continued to hammer on that and work through it. And in fact, I would say our Peking lineup is actually probably in some cases stronger than, than, uh, than other things. Um, and part of that is because of the source of resistance. So you might have to jot this down. This might get confusing. I don't know. So you're, there are five main um, races that we are concerned about in soybeans. There are many races of soybeans as nematode, but there are five main ones that you're concerned about. It's race one, two, three, five, and 14. Okay. 88788 gets three and 14. Peking gets one, three, and five. So it's not that you ever want to go full Peking across the entire lineup because 88788 gets that race 14. Um, once in a while, for some reason, a Peking variety will also give you some tolerance to race two, but nothing else gets race two. There are new novel things coming in the pipeline in the next few years where we will have resistance to race two, but that's that's coming down the line. So the cyst, the cyst thing is 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 really exciting. So in Peking, there is 
there are three genes that give you full peaking resistance. So that one, three, and five, and sometimes partial resistance to two. So if you look in our catalog anyway, I don't know about other, I can't speak for other companies, but we list every race and we give the one to nine score on every race. So if you see something that says Peking, if it doesn't have a nine on one, three, or five, that means the unofficial term that I've coined is Peking light. So it doesn't have all three genes for Peking. It has one or two of the genes for Peking. So if you just look right down that, that race, those race columns persist, you will see what kind of coverage you have. Um, so, and, and again, you can have partial resistance there and those types of things, but again, we have genetic markers that tell us that. So our breeders, when they're coming forward, if it doesn't have all three genes, that line normally gets thrown away and we, and we go for something that has all three genes so that you have peaking resistance, but don't just count discount 88788. If you've been peaking, peaking, peaking on the same field for the last 10 years, you might want to throw an 88788 on there just to change mm -hmm. it up a little bit. Or if you've been 88788 for 100 years, you might want to throw a Peking on there. And I think that's where some of the, the yield bump comes from. Mm -hmm. um, because from the Peking varieties is, you know, you have been so focused on, on three and 14, maybe one and five have become more dominant in those fields. Interesting. <clears throat> Very interesting, Eric. I know a number of years back, we did some soil sampling. I, I, my years are running together, but across the state, and, and really what it showed is that despite the widespread use of cyst-resistant varieties, that nematode populations were, were creeping upwards and, and really just uh, emphasizing the, the importance of mixing up those sources of resistance. And I think the, the exciting thing Eric and Ashley and, and listeners is, if I remember right, we're just a, a few years out here now, but I think uh, there was an announcement, what, uh, late spring about a new um, trait, a nematode-resistant trait that uh, we have been fortunate to license in. It's going to be a few years before that happens to, to become commercially available. So that's going to really broaden the platform and really try to address soybean cyst nematode as well. Because I think one of the things we've talked about on the podcast other times is that how SCN presence can also compound what we see with regard to sudden death syndrome in, in soybeans as well. But uh, just kind of one final question here before we, we wrap up and go to Ashley's uh, key points. But, you know, so we, we talked about 18A73s being one of the new A-series um, enlist varieties. A couple other top choices as far as varieties in the area that, that our, our listeners should be listen, thinking about for 2023. So if you can go into mid-group two, if that's a possibility, 25A16s are just a phenomenal, phenomenal bean. Um, they're peaking. They're very solid agronomically. They have a lot of a lot of top end yield. If you can go to two five, uh, you must plant that soybean, and you will not be disappointed. <laughs> um, you know, as you go as you go earlier, there's twenty one a fifty threes have a lot of top end yield. You know, and again, the, this kind of goes back to the diversity thing, and this is where you want to have discussions with with your seed seller. Um, you know, there are there are varieties that have. Um, what I would what I would call it, coin them uh, racehorsey. So maybe they're a little less on the agronomics, but they have a lot of top end yield. If you position them 
uh, correctly. I think that there, there's a lot of potential there. So off the top of my head, something like a 19A66, it is a very tall, growthy plant. If you keep it on maybe a coarser textured soil, maybe even drop the population a little bit because it because it, of its architecture, it's it's susceptible to white mold. On our scale, it'd be a three, um, which starts to make some people nervous. But as you go west, where white mold's less of a concern, that's going to be a, that's going to be a leader variety. If you go east, I would be a little more cautious with it, you know. And again, coarse coarse texture, coarser textured textured soil lower population, maybe even need to uh, apply a fungicide-like approach or something like that on it. So um, up and down the lineup, I, I'm, uh, I'm I'm very pleased. If you have really hot soil for iron chlorosis, um, um, 17, 17As would, would be a, a great fit in that type of situation. So I don't know, the bean, the bean lineup is good. I think we have a, a very nice package to uh, fit on about any acre. Eric, it's exciting to see just how how rapidly uh, we're seeing the improvements as far as the agronomics, as far as the enlist varieties, and then now with the A series and enlist in knowing pioneer lines where we've already uh, worked through many of those agronomic challenges. But of course, we, we never eliminate all those agronomic challenges. So it's it is really exciting to see what we're what we're experiencing with A series varieties and I think is 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 some of the farmers maybe have not had a chance to experience a series yet this this year they'll definitely see some of those results as that agronomy book comes out but Ashley I suppose it's probably time you summarize with the key points uh this podcast has kind of gone I think this will be a record maybe new longest uh -oh. but the beauty of it is is unlike radio you know unlike radio if you miss something, you know, you can always come back and listen to it another time or two. Or, you know, if you kind of doze off, you have a chance to replay it again or skip ahead to the right part uh, on the podcast. So, you know, I, I'm not going to apologize because I think we had a lot of good information from Eric. I mean, you know, we are scraping the bottom of the barrel, but he came through pretty big, Ashley. Mm -hmm. So what can you share as far as some of your favorite points before we finally bring this to a close? Well, I have a lot of favorite points for it being a, the bottom of the barrel conversation. We brought a lot of good stuff for our listeners. So thank you for that, Eric. Um, for brevity, I'll, I'll hit a few of the high notes. I appreciated the review of the length of the time that a hybrid is evaluated before it it hits our customers' farms um, as we reflect upon key years of environmental stresses, knowing that those hybrids, I mean, going back now uh, to 2015, seven years ago, there's been a lot of stress thrown at us that those hybrids have been able to be evaluated under before they hit our customers' farms spring of 2023, you know, as it relates to this season's hybrid selections. Um, our disease evaluation um, and process by which we evaluate both corn and soybean products before giving them a score gives me a lot of confidence, and I hope it gives our customers confidence in those scores that there is meat behind those um, to help you position product on your farm. Um, short corn, it was nice to see a peek behind the curtain on the short corn, um, and I, I enjoyed Eric's description of um, particularly that we carry the same amount of leaf matter. Um, and this is, as I have, I've had conversations with short corn with customers, one of the, what I think misconceptions is, is that it's a uh, residue uh, play and it's, it's not necessarily 
for mitigating the residue that you'd have uh, in the field following corn, but more so logistics and being able to get over that crop with shorter equipment and be able to endure windstorms um, to a degree that we haven't in the past. Um, and my final big takeaway is make sure we're not chasing that hot product, whether it's a, a corn hybrid, soybean variety, uh, plant a package mindfully um, to do the best that, that we can for, for your given farm. Uh, Jay, that's what I have. Well, thank you, Ashley. And before I totally close out the show, one of the things I want to do is just really just say thank you for uh, all of the farmers who've been so gracious and whether it be me or Ashley allowing us to ride in a buddy seat uh, in the combine. And one of the things that I, I've never once been refused a ride, surprisingly enough, I've maybe been stalled off that say, you know, uh, another day might be a better time. Um, but but really, I, I sincerely appreciate farmers are busy doing a lot of things. You guys are doing a lot of things. And for you to take the time to either reply to a text or call, say we'll be at such and such a farm. We really do. We learn so much from the buddy seat of the combine. Uh, you folks think maybe you learn things from us. I, I learned so many things about what's going on, what farmers are seeing. In fact, yesterday I was riding with a guy. I even got a, a brief European history lesson, which was pretty cool as, as well. Uh, so uh, anyhow, uh, I just, again, I just want to give a call out and say thank you for, for those of you that have allowed us to ride apologize as fast as harvest has gone this year. Some people I normally ride with, I didn't get a chance to ride with this year. Um, but uh, folks, uh, again, as we wrap this up, listeners, you can follow our podcast now on Twitter. We have our own uh, a Twitter handle and is at, at YFO Agronomy. And uh, if you haven't caught that yet, be sure that you uh, follow us on, on Twitter or you can follow me personally. I'm at seed zeke that's z-e-k-e if you want to know how to spell zeke and then uh also uh ashley we can find you at at ashley storby and eric where can folks find you what's what's your address in mankato (laughs) (laughs) one two three main street there you go um uh probably the best way is email eric.shimek at pioneer.com All right. Well, thank you again, Eric, for joining us today on the show. And you can join Ashley and me next week for podcast number 25 as we start our review of the top 10 agronomic observations for 2022. So, Ashley, I reached out to her a couple weeks ago. I said, you know what? I think we're going to split it up into two different shows. And so look forward to that next week and the following week. Thank you all for listening. I appreciate your your patience and attention during the podcast here. Uh, Thank you very much. Uh, Be safe and stay healthy.